0: Well, good morning. Welcome once again to Redemption Parker online. It is a privilege of my life always and in any way to open up God's word with you. And so if if you have a Bible and hope you do turn to the book of Matthew chapter seven, Matthew chapter seven. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, uh, even to the beginning of the year, you know that at the beginning of this year, looking into an election year and all the stuff that was going on in the world, uh, we, we turned our attention to the Gospel of Matthew for a reason, because it is about the King and the Kingdom, and and we wanted to realign our hearts and our lives and our focus in this time, what we thought would be kind of a, a term... to. to tumultuous time, uh, to just remind ourselves of what's true about us. Ultimately, we live for a king in the kingdom that is eternal. And so we had no idea back then that we wouldn't just be dealing with election season and taking our eyes off of that, but that we'd be dealing with a pandemic. And so all the more reason, uh, as the world's shaky foundations are, are, are shaking around us, do we need a hope and a future that is solid and secure? And that is found in the king and the kingdom. So if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 7 is where we that uh, is where we're going to be at this morning. But uh, there, there's a problem with that. Uh, you, you know that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. It is King Jesus telling us his manifesto of what it's like to be a citizen of the kingdom. What, what is the kingdom like? The, the upside down kingdom in so many ways is different than anything the world has ever seen. Now, now in our series, we started Matthew 5 of the Beatitudes on February 3rd. So a month and a half ago, we began this rather short sermon by Jesus, the best sermon that's ever been preached, and we began to work our way through that. And it's been about five, six weeks before we, since we've even been in that, and so let me just do some... A recapturing of the moment here, because where Jesus is going at the very end of his sermon, like any good preacher, and he's the best, is he's going to now bring the weight of that sermon to bear on, on his listeners and on you and me. And so he, he's not disconnecting everything he said uh, two and a half months ago with what he's going to say now, But but it's important for us to have the whole sermon in view. And so this week, I I spent some time just kind of going over the Sermon on the Mount once again and just kind of recapturing what was Jesus saying about the King and the kingdom. And he begins with the Beatitudes, the blessed are. And if you'll remember, I said these really shape and should be the lens that we see everything else in the sermon by. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We said blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Now, this is crazy. This is upside down that Jesus says, you're blessed if you can come to a point in your life where you can just kind of look at your life and you're like, man, I'm bankrupt. I have nothing to offer and in no, in no way, shape or form do I put hope in myself. Jesus says, when you can come to that place, you're blessed. And so he says, now, now keep that in mind as we go out throughout the sermon. And he, he goes on and he paints a picture for us of what, what kingdom living looks like. And, and these citizens of the kingdom are radically different. They're the salt and the light of, of the world. They, they love not only their, their friends and their family members. These people are called to love their enemies. No other system in the world has that kind of focus, that kind of emphasis on it. Jesus says, you know what? God is holy. And he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most holy men of the day, you have no place in the kingdom. And while that should initially cause the the listeners to groan, it should also cause some hope to to rise because it's back to the blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you're like, well, I I am not as righteous as the scribes and Pharisees. And in fact, your standard as he goes on is, is God's Perfect righteousness, and so it causes us to say, "I'm spiritually bankrupt." God, and Jesus says, "Well, I can work with that. You can come into the kingdom when you exchange your righteousness for." my righteousness. And he goes on and he talks about these kingdom c- citizens, they, that they love the king and, and they trust the king and, and he's a good king. And so he said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear. Don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, all those things. And he says, but, but kind of the culmination of the high point of the sermon, Matthew 6, He says, but you kingdom citizens seek first, seek passionately, obsessively seek the kingdom and God's, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so now we come to the end of the sermon and Jesus wants to bring the weight of what what he's saying to bear on our lives. One of the things I love about Jesus is he doesn't play around. I mean, he always has uh, an eternal perspective in mind. John, in his gospel, in chapter 1, describes Jesus as the one who is full of grace and truth. Uh, they're never compromised. They're never One's never lifted above the other. He is full of grace and truth. And, and this eternal king with an eternal view is always looking out for your eternal good and mine. So even when, like in this passage, when he says hard things to us, he, he's saying hard things to uh, maybe wake us up or to just remind us of what's ultimately important. And Jesus is going to say some hard things. So if you have your Bible, we're, we're going to look at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to look at a couple of the passages, uh, and we'll kind of unpack those and, and just see what Jesus has for us. What He's trying to put before us, what does it really mean? What, what is a true disciple? He's going to compare two things in a series of word pictures uh, to clarify, to warn, and to call us to him, to give us grace. So if you have your Bible, uh, I'll start in verse 13 and then I'll skip down a little bit, but I'd ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. Matthew 7:13. Jesus said, "Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, The way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Drop down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we, not cast, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray and ask God to give us grace in this moment. So Father... We just obey what Jesus said in this sermon, that we get to come to you and call you Father, but you are holy. So Father, we're asking that by your Spirit, through your Son, that you would give us grace in this moment. Lord, lead us to the path that leads to life and not the path that leads to death. And Lord, may may you say to us, well done, good and faithful servants, as we seek to follow you all the days of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus is 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 saying some of the hardest things he's said to this point. He, he's, again, got eternity in perspective. And when I come to this passage as a preacher, there, there is something in me that wants to just skip on, just kind of move to the next thing. The, the Bible is full of so many comforts, so many encouragements. And, and, and the New Testament particularly is written to believers to remind them, encourage them, and just uh, point them to the gospel. And so the vast majority of my preaching and our, our philosophy of preaching here at Redemption Parker is to remind and point you to the gospel. Remind and point you to the gospel. And there should be a, a lightness and a hope. And, and I, I believe there is a lightness and a hope even to this passage, but it's going to take a little work to get to to it. And I did not want to preach this passage, but then I realized the only thing worse than, than, than preaching this passage would be not preaching this passage because this comes from the lips of the King of Kings and he has good purposes in these warnings for you. And for me, he, he wants us to, to kind of test ourselves in this. Again, the the majority of the New Testament is meant to encourage, equip, remind the saints. And yet there are passages that say that there are times where it's appropriate for you and for me to pause and do a little bit of self-assessment. So take, for example, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So so he's saying just... Are you really a genuine believer? So then the question should be, well, what am I trusting in? What what am I believing? And, And does that line up with what Jesus is going to tell us a genuine believer is? And here Jesus is asking us to test ourselves. And, and we didn't cover it all, but he's giving these these pairs, these word picture pairs. And so there's two gates. There's a, a wide and a narrow gate. There's two ways. There's a, um, an easy and a hard way. There's two destinies, one that is life and one that is destruction. In the next section, there's two kinds of prophets, uh, true prophets and false prophets. There's uh, two kinds of Trees, good trees and diseased trees, two kinds of fruit, good fruit and bad fruit. Uh, then the next section, two kinds of behaviors, those that are sayers and those that are doers. There's two kinds of builders, the, the wise builder who builds this house on the rock and the foolish builder. There's two kinds of houses with the sure foundation of rock and the, the, those with the foundation of sand. And so Jesus wants us to picture the scene. So, so let's just do that, particularly with that first one. Where he says, enter by the narrow gate. Just wants us to picture life like this. Imagine traveling along a road. And you're just traveling along it because everyone else is traveling along the road. And, and you look around and, and just the, the masses of humanity are going on this road. And it's a nice road. And, and it 's kind of slow and smooth, and as you 're traveling along, you begin to uh, see your friends and your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, and, and, and things are, are for the most part good, and, and so you 're traveling along. But as you travel along, you see in the horizon on the horizon a, a, a massive gate, but it 's a beautiful gate. Like it's big and, and you can see people are just going through the gate and, and just traveling along. And you're like, yeah, that, everyone's doing it. Let, let's just keep walking through that gate. Well, as you're walking, you notice uh, that, that someone has gone off the path. The grass has been trodden down a little bit. And you think, that's curious. Who in their right mind w- would leave the, the safety of the masses and go off the path? And so you're thinking about it. But as you're traveling along with friends and family and coworkers and, and just the culture around you, you begin to ask some questions. And you say, hey, where are we going? And they're like, oh, we're, we're going to the gate. Okay, so so what what's the gate? And they're like, well, the gate is, you know, whatever you want it to be. I'm like, really? Yeah, the gate is heaven or um, nirvana or paradise or, uh, you know, it, it's just a really good place. So let's go. And you're like, all right, so that, that sounds good. And you're walking along and you're like, well, well wait a minute. Um, if, what if we believe different things? And now the crowd is kind of looking at you like, well, dude, what's your problem? Like, if you believe in God, fine. If you believe in a goddess, good. Or, or an impersonal force, whatever. But, but don't you think if there is something out there, it's, it's something of love, like a god or goddess or force of love? You're like, well, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. And, and if it's a, a force of love, don't you think that, that this force would just kind of lead everyone to the same place? Like many paths up the mountain... You're like, okay, I, I guess so. But so, so you're saying that if if my my Hindu neighbor says there's nirvana and nothingness, and I say there's heaven and life to the full, that's the same place. You're like you're you're thinking too much about it. Let's just go. And so you keep going, you keep going. But now as you get closer, you notice something else. Now you see some people actually peeling off from the crowd and and turning the other way. And you begin to watch them, and, and it's just one by one. A, a, a girl leaves her family and, and heads off the path. A, a man leaves his business and all of his wealth and success and, and career, and he heads off the path. And An old man, right before he gets to the gate, he, he heads off. And you're like, this is crazy. Why are they, why are they heading off? And now your interest is piqued. And you see it. There, there is actually another path. There, it's, a, it's a narrow path, but, but you decide to give it, a, give it a try for a while. And you, you walk down the path, and, and, and it's kind of hard, and, and there's turns and twists. But, but eventually, you come around the corner, and you see other people on the path, and you see another gate. But Jesus describes this gate as narrow. And the word narrow actually can mean crushing it is so small that as you get closer, you see some people going through. But as they get to the gate, they've got to leave all their baggage, everything behind. And they squeeze, like being pressed down, almost claustrophobic, squeeze through the gate. You're like, wow, that, that doesn't look that appealing. And you notice husband and his wives, they, they go, but only one can go at a time. They can't go through together and, and children can hold their parents' hands through this gate. It's one at a time, one at a time, and yet they go through joyfully. But, but then you see someone else who who gets very, very close to the gate and, and stops in horror and, and and turns around and and as they run back to the crowd and the crowd welcomes them back and they say whats what was wrong?" They're like, "It was awful. The path was hard, and, and the gate they're going to go through is so narrow and constricting, almost painful. but here's the worst part: that gate, that narrow, constricting gate, it is covered in blood. It's crazy. So that everyone that goes through that gate, they just get covered in the blood. Man, no thank you. Too narrow. Too constricting. I don't want anything to do with that. This is the picture Jesus is painting. And he says the vast, vast majority are on the broad road. But remember, the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. Things are not always as they appear. Reminds me of a couple stories from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said this about the broad road. He said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. He's just saying the vast majority of people that will spend a Christless eternity will just go gradually in that direction. And that's the saddest thing. But again, the kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And it reminds me of... Uh, my daughter's favorite book in the Narnia series, the, the last book, the the, uh, the last battle. And in the story, the, the, the Narnians are being attacked by the enemies. And, and King Tyrion uh, is, is being pressed back, pressed back. And there's this small little stable on the side of the hill. And it's his last place of refuge. And he's, as he gets pressed back, he, he thinks that's where he's going to make his last stand, or that's where he's going to die. And so he goes into this tiny little stable. But when he go inside everything is different. Here's what Lewis how Lewis describes it. Tyrion looked around again and could hardly believe his eyes. There was the blue sky overhead, and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction, and his new friends all around him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. It was the first time she had spoken. And from the thrill in her voice, Tyrion now knew why. She was drinking everything in, even more deeply than the others. She had been too happy to speak. This is the upside-down kingdom. This is what Jesus is warning us, but also inviting us to come inside the narrow way where there is life, and he describes it as abundant life. But the inside is bigger than the outside. And from the outside, it can seem hard, constricting, difficult. But Jesus says, true disciples find the narrow way and go on that. He'll go on and and describe other scenes. He'll he'll talk about um, uh, two kinds of fruits, two kinds of prophets. And he'll talk about... uh, True prophets and false prophets. Here, all you need to know is that false prophets, just it's not that 100% of what they say is false. It's sometimes they just don't tell the whole truth. And this is what I think is is rampant. And and the tendency and the temptation for me every week and every other pastor is just to tell the nice bits, right? But as D.A. Carson put it, he said this, it is even possible in some instances that everything these false prophets say is true. But because they leave out the difficult bits, they do not tell the whole truth, and their total message is false. That they're not pointing their people to the narrow path, the hard way in the shadow of the cross, life uh, that that is difficult on this side of eternity. And yet Jesus says this is the way to life, and so they are false prophets if they're not pointing you to that. He'll go on. After the prophets, he'll talk about these houses. I'll, I'll drop down to the house. This says everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the rock and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and, and great was the fall of it. Well, Jesus says one more comparison to show what true discipleship actually looks like. Look at verse 21. We already read it, but let's, let's kind of unpack it. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that term, Lord, Lord, is a right uh, doctrinal position. It's even a term of endearment. So, so, in some way, there is going to be a mass of humanity, not, not just that have fallen away, not who have blatantly turned their back on God, but those that, that have been in the church, those that have been serving, pastors, missionaries, uh, deacons, uh, faithful members, people that give, people that have, in some cases, incredible ministry, and they're gonna come to Jesus on that day, and they're gonna be like, Lord, Lord, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Now we'll come back to that in just a second. It says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. That they look at their spiritual resume, and they're like, "Jesus, we did all this for you. We we uh, we, we we taught, we preached, we we testified of who you are, we prophesied in your name. I mean, these, these people are have cast out demons. They've they've had some tremendous spiritual work and ministry." And not only that, it says, and did we not do many mighty works in your name? Their spiritual resume is better than any of ours. And this is why it's so shocking that Jesus would, what Jesus would say next. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, that I never knew you is tied to what Jesus said earlier in verse 21. Uh, He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what is the will of the Father in heaven? He's preached on it for three chapters. The will of the Father in heaven is to turn to Jesus, to trust in him, to know him, to delight in him, to see him and savor him. That's the Father's will. And Jesus says, the way you get into heaven is to know me. The word is one of the most important words. There's two words in this passage that are the most important words in the New Testament. The word to know here that Jesus uses is gnosko. It means to know by personal and intimate experience. It's not enough to know a lot about Jesus. It's not enough to have a right doctrinal statement and check all the boxes while that's good. Jesus says, to to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to know me and I have to know you. There has to be a personal relationship here. This is at the heart of Christianity. And Jesus promises when you know him, that then you also receive him. And when you receive him, you are covered in his righteousness. You are covered by the blood of the lamb. So do you know Jesus personally? Not, not just about him, but is there, is there a treasuring of Jesus in your heart and in your life? And as you do some self-assessment uh, and you come to a conclusion like, well, I think so, or I want it to be, that's a good position. Like Jesus works with that. Or if you're just saying, no, I- I'm going to trust in all my spiritual resume, all that I've done for Jesus, that of course he's going to let me in. I'm one of the biggest givers in the church. Uh, of course he's going to let me in. I've been faithful to my wife. Of course he's going to let me in. I-, I I served as a missionary or a pastor. One one Puritan pastor in a book uh, what was his name Richard Baxter. He said, "God never saved a man for being a pastor. He never saved a man for being a missionary. He never saved a man for being faithful to his family. He never saved a man for being a good giver. Any of these things. He saves a man because he knows and savors Jesus. That's the mark of a the first mark of a true disciple. The second one comes out of that. If you know and trust Jesus, then you." Uh, trust Jesus comprehensively. So you know Jesus personally, and then trust Jesus comprehensively. Notice I didn't say perfectly, but, but, but when you know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there is a growing trust, and I said comprehensively, because it's this idea that no area of my life is off limits to this King. And I'm going to trust Him in every area. I'm not going to do it perfectly. I'm not even going to do it well some days. But but there is a desire. There is a pressing in. There's a pleading with God. I, I want to trust you in this area. So, so there's no relationship off, off limits to the king's rule and authority. That there's no finances. That there's no job. That there's no future plans. That There is no part of your life where you aren't submitting yourself to trusting the king and his will for your life. And again, you might do some self-assessment and be like, wow, you know what? There are areas where I have put off limits to Jesus. Jesus is warning you, but he's also inviting you. He's inviting you to repent and to turn back to him and experience life as it was always meant to be lived. So, tied, so, so you know Jesus personally. You trust him comprehensively. And that leads to a an obeying him gladly. We saw this in the building of the house on the rock and the sand. But what, when you know King Jesus... And you know, he is the creator of the cosmos and that he has loved you enough to give his life for you, that he is working out all things together for good for those who are love God and are called according to his purposes. When you see him rightly, then you gladly obey him. You know that his will for your life is better than anything you could plan or think or dream of. Now, again, this is an area where we wrestle with on the daily, right? Like... I I don't always obey God gladly, but, but there is something growing in me that seeing him clearer and clearer says, man, I want to submit my life gladly to you because in you is fullness of joy and following you, trusting you, obeying you. And again, there are areas in our lives where we just don't do very well with that. But blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that see that and say, God, I'm sorry. I I have not obeyed you gladly. I bring this to you once again, lay it at your feet and ask for your grace and your strength in the days to come. So true disciples, know Jesus personally, trust Jesus comprehensively and obey Jesus gladly. These are the questions you need to ask of your soul this morning. Because Jesus is warning us not to, to put a downer on your day, but to, to lift your eyes to the one who is worthy of your life and your worship and your your devotion and your your obedience, all the things. And if, if you've never done that, consider the words of Jesus as an invitation to you to come through the narrow gate. The inside is bigger than the outside. Go further in and further up, and see that life in God is what life is really meant to be all about. And maybe you, you you're just wondering, and you're, you're you're curious, and you're nervous, and all that is normal. If you're if you've heard all this, and you're like, "Yeah, I got that." Check. Know Jesus personally. Check. Trust Him comprehensively. Check. Obey Him gladly. You're probably in the most dangerous position ever, <laughs> because they're. There is a blessedness to those that are like, man, I am desperate. I can't do this on my own. But if that's you, there's an invitation on the table for you. And you say, well, I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if I can go through that narrow, constricting gate. I just would just remind you of what we celebrated last week. Because on the other end of that gate, though the way is hard and the path is narrow, on the other end of that gate is the king of kings who understands narrowness. He who created the cosmos got pressed down into the form of a baby. Lived his life perfectly. Paid the price we, you and I can never pay rose again by the power of God, he's on the other end of that gate. And again, he's got the nail scarves to prove his love. And he says, come on in, come on in. For the rest of us, this is what true discipleship looks like. This is how our life has to be geared, that you should be growing in your knowledge of Jesus, growing in your trusting of Jesus, growing in your glad obedience to Jesus. To that end, let me pray for us. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace to us this morning. Thank you for hard words that make soft hearts. And I pray that that would be the case. Lord, we are spiritually bankrupt. And so to even know you is a gift from you. And so we ask for you to just bestow that gift on each of us. To trust you is is an act of faith that says, I'm not going to trust in my own ability, but in yours as the sovereign king of the universe. And to obey you is to say, you know better than I do. And I gladly submit my life to you. Jesus, we need your spirit to do that in us and through us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.